Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Comero, an Autistic Certified Financial Planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with Eileen Lim. Hey, Eileen. Hey, everyone. In this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but real people talking about their boring life. Basically, we want to give a voice to people like us. Today, our guest is Michael Gilberg. Michael is a special education attorney, an autistic self-advocate, first diagnosed at age 18. Michael devotes his legal career to representing children with disabilities to ensure they get appropriate education that they are entitled to under the law, which he was denied. Michael serves on numerous boards and committees, including Council of Parent Advocates, sorry, including Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, or COPA, the Autism Spectrum News Editorial Board, New York State Autism Spectrum Disorders Advisory Board. Michael also has years of political and policy experience in government and advocating for disability in public policy. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today. We start by asking our guests uh, what pronouns they like to use. So I'm talking about he, him, she her, and uh, what identity language you use as an autistic person. So, you know, on the spectrum, autistic, with autism. It's funny because I don't think about that stuff as much as most autistics. I just think, you know, like I said, I'm boring. I'm just a regular, you know, I, I, I sometimes feel as a straight, as a straight white guy, my only uh, not identity besides autism is being Jewish. I'm like, boring by comparison to some, I'm not intersectional. That's a good answer. And what are your preferred pronouns? I mean, I never usually do it. It's just he and him. I don't, I'm still learning the pronoun thing myself, and I'm having to learn to be sensitive to others. So can you tell us a little bit about when you were diagnosed and what it was like for you growing up? Well, I think being diagnosed at 18, I had a lot of resentment towards it. I, didn't, I wanted, I was one of those, not typical, but like many 18 year olds, I just wanted to quote unquote, be normal, whatever the normal is. And so I kind of fought the diagnosis and I resisted for a long time. And I tried to say, no, 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 that's not what it is. And then eventually I got to a point where I realized, you know what, this is who I am. Well, I think, I think, what I, I think at 18, we're all stupid, no matter what your identity is. Otherwise, you know, I, at 18, you're stupid. And I think as I got into my twenties and thirties, I learned a lot more about who I am. And I, get, I gained a greater understanding of my own needs and my own self, I'm trying to think of the word, my own situation. And I think that made me a better person and made me more able to be like, okay, this is who I am, accept it, live with it, that's it. So you're a lawyer, I'm a special ed attorney, like Andrew had said, yeah. I represent families of children with children on the spectrum, spectrum and other disabilities who don't feel they're getting appropriate or the right legal services and want something different. So why did you choose to become a a lawyer and why did you choose to focus on special education law? And what is special education law? So when I was growing up, I did not get an appropriate education, what the law would call a free and appropriate public education. And, you know, I, I got up to adulthood. I went to college. I finally started in college doing better. And, I got out of college trying to figure out what I wanted to do at 22 with the rest of my life. I had a degree in psychology. I thought I wanted to go become this great psychological researcher. I went to grad school in psychology and hated it. 
My father got sick for a little bit, so I used that as an excuse to drop out. And, you know, my mother said from when I was little, I'd make a good lawyer. And I just realized with all my policy work, the law was where, where I was best suited, especially given that I have an ability to drive people drive people crazy to get them to do what I want, which is a good skill in politics. If you're trying to change the law, that people will change the law just to get you out of their hair. And so I think that, you know, I just realized it. And as I went through law school, it's something that just always stuck in my mind about special ed law because I didn't get the services growing up and I had to catch myself up when I get to college and fill those gaps. But how many people are going to have the motivation I have to do that? How many people are going to go back and say, you know what, the system failed me, but I'm going to take care of myself. A lot of people who come out of college, I mean, come out of high school, not college ready, they give up. They don't do that. They move. They just, you know, they end up unhappy and they're employed. So I just said, I can make this world a better place for so many people with autism and other disabilities to make sure they have the right services and education before they get to college. What services did you wish you had when you were younger? It's hard. It's hard to evaluate yourself, especially when you're looking at things 30 years on. You know, it's this, I see stuff today that I wish existed when I was a child, but it didn't. But it's hard for me to second guess certain pieces of it because what I know, I know in the context of being an attorney in between, you know, from 2011 to 2022, and I was growing up in the 80s and early 90s when the whole the whole situation was just different. And so it's, it's, to me, it's almost an apples to oranges comparison to say, what do you wish you had? I don't think I can do that right now in a way that would make any sense because of the stuff I'm thinking of in the context of today, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. I think that's uh, an even more important skill is when to admit that things have changed or you know, when to know uh, when things are, are not related. So thank you. You know, I always tell people when I was growing up, autism was a kid sitting in the corner, banging his head against the wall. It wasn't people like me or either of you or any of us who were more, you know, I don't want to say high functioning because people like functioning label, what they call now, I believe, less support needs. And so, you know, to me, the whole, the whole narrative, the whole, of the whole, there's a word I'm blanking on, the whole you know, idea of autism has changed. I, I think pretty much everyone uh, in the community can agree to that. Um, now, you mentioned uh, your special education attorney. Can you tell us the difference between an advocate, and I'm using quotes, um, and a special education attorney, and where should somebody start, and what's the difference? Well, an advocate doesn't have to have any actual credentials. Anybody can call themselves an advocate. There's no regulation. It's just a word that means anything. We all advocate for different things, but there's no actual requirement. Anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves an advocate. An attorney, you have to go to law school and pass a state bar. You can't call yourself an attorney without being barred somewhere. The difference in how they work in special ed is an attorney is brought in when things are more contentious with the district. And... If, if you have a district that's working with you, but you don't know what you need for your child and you want to keep him in district, an advocate works. They can help come and get good better evaluations, modify the IEP, things like that. If you're going to look for a private placement, you always need an attorney. An advocate can't get you a private placement. 
So it, it depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for a different program and district, you can often start with an advocate. And if the school is not being, was works with you, great. And if they don't work with you and it's one of the more difficult districts, then you might have to switch to an attorney. So is what you're saying that it's better to always start with an advocate and maybe to get people to change its best option? Not, not always. I think if you have a case where you know it's going to be a private placement, most bullying cases, I think you need an attorney from the start in a lot of bullying cases because there were so many legal issues going on there. And there were certain little things. You have unique cases. I think it's a very case-by-case situation. Got it. Thank you. You know, I, uh, I have a situation right now with my son who's uh, on the serious side of the spectrum. And uh, he's like, he's escaped from the school uh, building. He's like aggressive towards himself and others. I mean, right. he, he needs a one-on-one, right? I mean, That's what I'm getting at. Right, the term serious. I've never heard someone use the term serious side of, side of the spectrum. I guess it's severe, but yeah, serious is good too. Yeah, or profound or level three. And and that's become a big controversy within a lot of the self-advocate community. And I've had this conversation with many, I think I've talked to Andrew about this, that there's this whole question about functional labels. And some people are opposed to it, some are for it. And what you mentioned about your son, the whole controversy of ABA. I'm right now co-chairing the task force for the Autism Society of America they're doing a comprehensive panel on ABA and comprehensive paper. I'm one of the co-chairs representing the self-advocate community. And we've had recent town halls on ABA and it's been contentious to say the least. What's your take on ABA? I think ABA can, has to be done in the right way. To me, it's a matter of number one, what is the behavior is it that's, that you're looking to eliminate? Is it something quote that people think is weird or strange, but it's not harming anyone? And and like flapping their hands, who cares? But your son, if there's aggression running in the street, I've had a number, I've had some kids recently masturbating in class. Those are issues that have to be addressed. We can't just say, oh, he's autistic, let him behave that way. My clients have an eight-year-old girl right now masturbating in class. As she gets older, that's gonna be a problem. She can't just be allowed to do that. Your son cannot be allowed to run on the street because he could get hit by a car. So I think we have to look at what's the behavior. You know, we all have little stims we do autistic or not. So if somebody wants to fidget or flap their hands, who cares? You know, we all engage in behavioral modification. As adults who are able to do this, we all understand that when you're crossing the street, you wait for a green light and a red light means you don't go. That's a form of ABA. It's teaching us behaviors not to walk across the street unless you see this light. So I think ABA has to be used in a very ethical way for the right reasons. But again, things where they beat the kids or they use aversives and they use a lot of physical restraint is is not the way to go. I think you have to use ABA in a way that teaches behavior, but it's not done properly. And I think ABA in some corners has, has, has become stigma to the name. I've heard people say ABA has a marketing problem and what they need to do is rename it, rebrand it. Yeah, I love how you put it. Um, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, ABA is not about the little stims that are totally okay. Like it's about some serious issues uh, that need to be addressed. Um, and it's not about just trying to make the autistic person uh, normal. It's about keeping them safe and, you know, others around them too, because sometimes their behavior affects 
others. Like when my son, Charlie, hits other kids or the teacher, the TA, you know, we need to do something about it. Uh, well, and that's one of those where I believe you can't just say he's autistic. That's what, and this is what I deal with schools. You can't just say he's autistic. It's part of who he has allowed him to do that. Those kids have a right to bodily autonomy and Charlie's autism does not give him a right to violate their personal space. Right. And so he, as you're saying, he needs to learn that he can't, it's not appropriate to put his hands on others. I, I agree. So something that would help is a one-on-one. So what, uh, what advice would you give for parents who have gone through the process but can't get the services they feel would suit their child best? For example, I want an advocate for Charlie. I want a, a one-on-one for Charlie. I got an advocate and that didn't help. Um, so what advice do you have for parents in my situation? So you're in Texas, right? Yeah. I think part of it has to do with where you are and who you hire. And like anything else, advocates, there are great advocates. I just got back from my conference, which was COPA, which Andrew mentioned in BioBio, Bio, which is the professional organization of attorneys and advocates in special ed. And we have amazing advocates. But again, anybody can call themselves an advocate. Anybody can go hang out a shingle and say, I'm an advocate. So you have to remember that that leads you to getting good and bad. If you, if you get, if you have that, if anybody can do it, you can get good, good advocates and bad advocates. And, and how do you tell the difference between the good advocates and the bad advocates? Word of mouth, reputation. You know, that's the thing. Again, advocate, being an advocate is not regulated. Being an advocate is just, I want to be an advocate. I can call myself that. Like, could I be an advocate if I wanted to? Yes, anybody can. I mean, the only issue is if you're an attorney, and some attorneys do this, is they call, they, they don't, they're, they're licensed attorneys, but they say they're practicing as an advocate. School districts are not usually fans of that because they're saying they're trying to get around their being an attorney. Because if a school district, if a parent has their attorney at a meeting, the school district has to have theirs. Yeah, I think uh, the fact that anyone can be an advocate is definitely an issue. But, you know, I feel like most advocates here have uh, good reviews. I mean, you know, I, I did a lot of research and the person I went with had good reviews. Right. I mean, advocate is just a term. It doesn't, it's not like lawyer where there's a sort of a certification connected to it. But yeah, there's no uh, low, low background, I guess. Um, so that might be where the issue is. Like they can't, they can't scare the, scared the district as much as an attorney could, right? Right, no. And there are times where a district will say to the parent, no, 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 until get, they, an attorney gets involved. And that's when no, no, no becomes yes, yes, yes. Right, yeah. You know, it becomes a different situation. And, of- uh, and other than the qualifications necessary, um, legally, what can an attorney do that an advocate can't? I assume one is go to court, but why yes. would that happen? In general, in most cases, an attorney can file for what's called a due process hearing, and an advocate can't always do that. Or an advocate doesn't have the training to run, to conduct to run a hearing to do a hearing. And why do people go to a court, which is a hearing, is because they're unhappy with the services, and the school district refuses to budge and says we're doing a great job. There's nothing wrong with your child. You're just a bit, you're, you're just a difficult mother. I've seen cases like that where the school will say, this child is fine in school and tell the mother it's her fault. 
And so I think in many cases, you know, you, I've always said sometimes, I feel like some of my colleagues and I, the ones I get along with and don't hate this on the school board side, our job is to be an honest broker, I think, between the parents and the school districts. Do you think you have a different perspective on autism advocacy, uh, working with so many different sides and seeing parents fight so hard for services for kids uh, like my son? I think it varies because I do have a unique perspective from my life experience, but the problem is when the parents don't agree. And what I find the biggest challenge is when the parents are going in two different directions. Do you have any examples that you are able to share? Nothing specific, but I just, in general, I've had these, a couple of these cases where the mother wants everything to be taken care of and is looking out for her daughter and the father gets into this. My kid is not autistic. Oh my God. That's He's my not kid. like that. He's not like that. And I hate to make it a gender stereotype thing, but it's always the man holding that position, not the woman. And, and what happens in those situations? What's the typical outcome? Either the father ends up realizing he's wrong and he does what has to be done or the, what's it called? Or the, uh, what's it called? Or the school district or the mother has to figure it out. But, you know, or the kid, if, in some cases, if the father never comes around, the kid never gets that appropriate education. But I, I always say, I only do what I, I only can do what I can do. So tell us a, a little bit more about your business. Um, you know, the law is, well, there's lots of different aspects of the law. Uh, there's lots of different ways to help others with disabilities in the law. Um, so tell us a bit how it started and, and how your business intertwines with your advocacy work. What do you mean? So what I mean is- so I mean I I mean I'm 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 here doing this podcast, right? Not not as a my my business, but it, you know, advocacy, right? So they're they're very intertwined, right? Being, you know, an advocate in some of the public policy is also, you know, very much a part of your profession as well. Right. And so I guess I just I bring my unique my unique life experience to what I'm doing for these kids. And I've had parents say to me, meeting you makes me realize my son can go to college and he can be someone instead of just a kid sitting on the couch, which is a problem parents do have when their kids sits, you know? So I think it's just, it's a very intertwining because very often I sometimes will talk to the kid and the parents will ask me, can you talk to him and, and explain this to him? So he, he doesn't listen to us, we're his parents. And so I think there's a lot of cases where you can step in in many ways and be as an honest broker between the parents and the child. And while it's not directly in school, it's, uh, I lost my train of thought, sorry. So what's a question that someone should ask uh, an advocate? Versus, you're really into the advocate versus an attorney. A question for- Oh, the sorry, judge. actually, no. I think we meant of uh, as an attorney or an advocate, right? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this, I sorry, is this IEP appropriate to meet my child's needs? Is that a good first question? That's a very, it's a very base question in special ed. What, uh, what should a parent look for with an appropriate IEP? And can you tell us the difference between an IEP and a 504 plan? Sure, an IEP. So the, the answer to the appropriate, the, the answer to what an appropriate IEP looks like 
is specific to each child. That's why it's an individualized education plan. I can't, I can't tell you what to do when you're, I, I, I say, it's individualized. And so you have to follow that individualization. And so what to ask for in terms of services, it depends on who the child is. You know, what child A needs might not be the same as what child B needs. That sounds like a good way to approach it. Just look at what the individual needs and- Right, the IDEA stands for, which is a special ed law nationally, stands for Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So I think that we all are seeing the fact that, you know, there's, there's definitely an effort now to weaken federal civil rights legislation, which a lot of people are very worried about. So how do you feel about the neurodiversity movement? Uh, I heard that you were previously involved with uh, ASAN, A-S-A-N. I don't know if I say the word previously. I've been to some of their events. Like any movement, there are people I like in the movement. There are people I dislike, you know, and, and, and you can't be everybody's friend. And there are people who don't like me. You know, I think just because we're autistic, we're still people. And there are people you can just you can just not like because you don't like them. It doesn't have to be because they're autistic. What, what do you feel has changed since you started becoming involved with advocacy? I think that more people know what autism is now. They see it as a full, that people on the spectrum can be doctors, lawyers, all these other things, and that fully functional human beings it's not the prejudice that existed with someone like Jordan, who I mentioned, where the people, they're growing up and they're told they, because they're not speaking, they're never going to amount to something, they're never, amount to something, they're never going to be able to be in school because they're too, they're too stupid. Although I had a social worker tell my mother I'd never graduate high school. So I did go back to look at him, look him up now that social media makes that possible and found he had died two years earlier, so I didn't get the satisfaction. If there was one piece of advice that you could give, you know, a parent, you know, starting down this road, um, you know, what what would be the the one key takeaway? I think it would be trust your judgment on your child. You know your child best. If the school says school says something that doesn't sit right with you, challenge it. Be a big mouth. <laughs> I know how to do that. Uh, where it's can we parents, find you? It's, it's, the, it's the parents who make no, the noise who end up in the most trouble. Yeah. I'm assuming you guys will put my website up. My website is Michael Gilbert ESQ. Again, Michael Gilbert ESQ. Dot com. And my email for the office is Michael. Michael. I'm sorry. Michael Gilbert ESQ. All one word at gmail.com. And where can we find you on social media? Are you? I'm everywhere. I'm connected with both of you in many places, so I'm all over social media, but not Instagram. To me, Instagram is just a knockoff of Facebook, the Facebook lot. We're going to ask you some quick fire questions now. I mean, I will. So how it works is that I ask you a question and you tell me the first answer that comes to your mind. It's supposed to be like... I've seen this done before. It's okay if you you can't answer. We won't be mad. What -hmm. is your favorite food or drink? Diet Coke, it's my, my drug of choice. If you could be any animal, fictional or real, what would you choose and why? Oh, I, I have no idea. What is your special interest or one that comes That's to you? That's the thing. I'm very atypical of people on the spectrum. 
is that I don't, I don't really have those special obsessive interests. I did when I was a kid, but I almost grew out of them. Special education? There's no special interest, I don't think. Well, when I was a kid, I had an ob- had the obsession with the dinosaurs, the U.S. presidents, and the New York City public, New York City subway system. What's your uh, favorite artistic representation in the media, fictional or not? That's so broad, I can't even think of what I would pick. One of mine. Do you have a favorite quote or saying? If so, uh, what's the quote and who said it? Hmm. Well, I guess it's the famous Wayne Gretzky line. You take, you take 100% of the shots you don't make. And that's why as someone who grew up behind... I always took the shots to try to get ahead. I took whatever chances I could. Awesome. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah. You, you did it. Thank oh. you for coming today.